0: Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. I'm Jason Stephan Hagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. When I was growing up, going to school, school kind of came a little easy to me because the focus in school, as many of us are aware, is on how well can you regurgitate knowledge that you have learned? How well can you regurgitate knowledge that you've learned. How well can you listen to a video? How well can you read a book and then put down on paper, answer in a test question, the things that the book, the video, the teacher's lecture, whatever it was, how well can you regurgitate what they've told you? How well can you take in the knowledge, take in the learning, take in the new information and then give it back to them in the way that they want it? And I was pretty good at that. I could listen well. I could read. I could listen to a lecture, watch the video, whatever it was, hold that information and then give it back in the way that the teacher, the school, the test required of me. And I think in a lot of ways, that form of growth, that form of knowledge acquisition, also was emphasized in my learning about the Bible my learning about Jesus my learning about the stories that we see in scripture I remember growing up and one of the, the fun you know pieces of what we would do in Sunday school is we would do these things called sword drills and I know some of you out there have no idea what I'm talking about what is a sword drill are you guys like making you know cardboard swords and then like having a contest you know or something no it's sword drill is you would just name a book of the Bible, chapter of the Bible, verse of the Bible, and you would have to look it up and start reading it out loud as fast as possible. And so it was testing your knowledge of how well did you know the books of the Bible, how to find a passage in the scriptures. And so I was really good at this. I had the books of the Bible memorized. I knew the song. I had it nailed down. And if you said, Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 23, I would be on it like no problem. You could give me the most obscure minor prophet, you know, that those little guys that are, you know, only like four pages long in your Bible that are, you know, two chapters, three chapters, four chapters, the book of Jude, which doesn't have chapters. So, of course, that would trick everybody up because it'd be like Jude 23. And it would be like, what? Like, what, what chapter? What verse? And, you know, I knew like there, there's no chapters in Jude. It's just one book with no chapters. You go find it. Jude 23. Boom. You're on it. I was great at that. And I, I I knew how to study for that. I knew how to absorb that information so that I could give it back in a way that got me the gold star, that got me the little extra donut at the end of the Sunday school lesson. I was great at it. And, and in all honesty, it served me Well, uh, later in life, I know my Bible. Like I, I really have a lot of confidence in diving into Scripture, knowing the order, knowing the process. It makes it easier to learn more about the Bible. Because I have this base of knowledge, this base of information, it allows me to be able to learn more because I'm not starting from a place of, okay, where's Nehemiah coming in the order of the Bible? How does that affect how we read it? because I know it comes later in the Old Testament, because I know it comes after all the stories about the kings, when someone starts talking about them going into exile under Babylon and then they're going back to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, it makes sense, right? Because I know the placement of it. So knowledge can be obviously a really helpful thing. It gives us a baseline. It gives us a foundation from which to build off of. I was also really great at At trying to understand all the good arguments for what I believed in, all the good doctrines of what I believed in. I I loved having a good answer to the questions that were out there about my faith. I loved being able to solve things. I loved being able to have this conundrum about, you know, creation or the conundrum about why the cross or, uh, you know, all these questions that we had. I loved being able to have answers for those. I love being able to have a reason for my beliefs that I could explain everything and feel very confident in it. You know, we just spent the last few podcasts here talking about faith development theory. We've been talking about identity development theory. And then last time we talked about these beautiful Hebrew and Greek words, teshuva, metanoia. We talked about hamartia, Hata. we talked about halaka. we talked about all these words and how there's all this trajectory language in it. And here's why I want to talk to us about knowledge and participation. Because I think sometimes those two things can be put against each other. Knowledge acquisition versus active participation. So here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of times the way that we shape our faith development is based on what we know. Like, how many of the doctrines do we feel confident in? How many proclamations or professions of faith have we made so that we can feel confident and secure in what we believe? And, and it's those securities and that safety that is foundational and trustworthy and feels pure and it feels holy and it feels um, very comforting and therefore it helps us feel safe. And those are really beautiful things and I don't want to take anything away from that feeling of safety and confidence in one's faith. But the, the problem can be that a person with a strong sense of belief, a strong understanding of doctrine, someone that has an argument or a reason for all of the big lingering questions that that keep getting asked by humanity over and over, generation after generation, the problem with feeling like we have enough knowledge or that our knowledge acquisition is enough for us is that it doesn't mean that we actually participate in anything. Knowledge acquisition doesn't demand active participation. The problem is that my understanding of the Bible, when I dive deep into it, It speaks more about, are you participating in this way of being in the world, this new way of living as Christ, and less about, do you just have all the knowledge? So, a couple examples of this. Jesus actually turns people away from being disciples, people that wanted to follow after him. So, you so. You would imagine this new rabbi comes on the scene. He's about thirty some years old. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He comes out of Galilee. Does anything good come from Galilee? The Bible actually says so. He's kind of coming from a nowhereville, and he comes on the scene and he's got all this knowledge. But not only does he have this knowledge, he also has this this way about him. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's he's he has this way of talking about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven and instructs people to pray that way as if there's this new way of existing in creation that there's this new form of harmony um, that is meant to cut through all the tension of that time um, you know love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you you know it's no longer an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth but there's this new way of existing you would imagine that as Jesus is going around town to town doing all of this work That when he heals people and when he, you know, casts out a demon, people would want to continue to follow him. And they did. And his, his, the list of disciples, we know the 12 apostles, the 12 core, but we also hear that there were many disciples, many people following him. At one point, Jesus doesn't just send out the 12, he sends out the 72. So there's 72 disciples that Jesus commissions to go out and to share the good news that. That that good news has come, right? That there's this new way of, of being in the world. There's this new idea of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so we know that there's many, many disciples. But there's these stories at different times where, where Jesus will do something miraculous. And the person will say, teacher, can I follow you? Rabbi, can I follow you? And he'll say, no. Go back to the town and tell them what the Lord has done for you. He actually says, you don't need any more knowledge. Because, why? Because. The heart has been transformed. The, the the work has been done to the point where, are we ever in doubt that this person's life will forever be changed? Of course it has. Of course this person's life has been changed forever. Jesus has done a miraculous work in their life, and that story will continue on because of the transformation that has occurred. You know, another way that we could talk about this is um, how people identified the first followers of Jesus. They didn't um, simply call them a, a new group. They called them uh, people of the way. People of the Way, and, and, and I think that's a really significant way of describing things because we we call each other Christians, Evangelicals, Protestants, Catholics, you know, Methodists. We call each other these different labels, but what do those labels actually mean? What does it mean to be an Evangelical? What does it mean to be Catholic? What does it mean to be Protestant? What does it mean to be Methodist? You know, and at the first century, the earliest Christians were called people of the way. And and I think that's a really significant label they were given because it wasn't just a label that defined their doctrine. It defined the way in which they were participating in the world around. They were people of a new way of being human, a new way of engaging the world, a new way of experiencing community. They were sharing everything in common. They were praying for one another daily. They were always together, eating together, talking about what God was up to. And they were active in their faith, seeking out others that were looking for a new way of being in the world. And so they were people of the way. So there's some verses in the Bible, though, that can come sometimes trip us up a little bit because we, we bring a little bit of our present tense understanding into the way they are translated. So some of you are like, okay, you just lost me. I'm getting kind of bored. Okay, here's what I mean. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. This is one of the hallmark verses of the Bible. Why? Because it's so clear and it's so precise, right? If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. Now, we bring a lot of information to those words. We, we bring a 21st century understanding of what believe means. We bring a 21st century, oftentimes Christian theology, Western theology to what it means to be saved to this context. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved oftentimes can be understood as if you cognitively acquire the knowledge that Jesus is Lord and Christ, then you will go to heaven one day. You will be saved. Right, and 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 for many people, that understanding that if I believe this, if I take in this information, if I if I have this knowledge acquisition that I believe Jesus is Lord and the Christ, then I will go to heaven one day. That brings about a sense of security and safety. And and for many people, it's almost like they don't need to know any anymore. They just want to be. They, they, there's a comfort to that. There's a safety and a security in that, and that's a beautiful piece of it, right? We want. Our faith to help ground us and help give us a foundation that we can build off of so belief can often be seen as knowledge acquisition. but the problem, and I don't want to be careful with the problem because like I said, this is a beautiful understanding of faith, the idea that you can cognitively you know accept this knowledge this information and you can feel confident about what will happen to you or, or where you're headed and that's a really beautiful thing. But if we dive into the context of this text a little bit more, we can see that the word belief is a word that we have to take out of our 21st century context and ask ourselves, what is that word really getting at in the first century? When it would have been written about Jesus Christ, what would that word have really been uh, thoroughly understood to mean? And belief encapsulates Cognitive acquisition of some information, of knowledge. But it is more than just cognitive assent, cognitive agreement. It also means embodiment. Right? So it's believe with the entirety of your being, is another way of saying it. Believe with everything you have. You know, so it's kind of reminiscent of love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength or your greatness, right? It's, it's, it's so love with every ounce of you, right? Love the Lord your God with every ounce of you, everything that you are, everything that makes you you. And you could almost say similarly, like, believe. Like, like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, base your life, base your hope, base your future on everything on Jesus Christ. So, like, put it all on Jesus, right? Believe, like, to the fullness of your being with, with your whole mind and with all of your actions, with all of the way that you are going to live this out. And why? Because you will be saved. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, I am not great at Greek I am not great at understanding types of speech. So if somebody wants to send me an email at Steffenhagen at wellmn.church, feel free to do so. Or you can email me on my Google account. It's just jstephanhagen at gmail.com. And you can correct me on this. But I think, I remember learning that this is a future aorist understanding of the word, you will be saved. Or the, 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 the verb um, to go with, like, you will be saved. So will be saved. It's a future aorist tense, which which means that it's less about a past action that is that is finished, right? It's not it's not a past action that is finished, but it's about an action that is continuing. So it's an action that is continuing. That yes, it has happened, but it also is happening. So another way to translate this believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Another way of translating this could be to say, uh, with everything that makes you, you, with all of your mind and with all of your energy and all of your passions and all of your active life, base it and place it on the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you will enter into a, a process of being saved saved, that you will be on the road, that you will be in this way, you will be caught up in this way of being saved, that you will be on this movement Towards towards sanctification, right? That's the the good Methodist word. That's a good Christianese word for it. That you will be in the process of sanctification. You'll be being made like Christ. That you will be kind of put on the journey. So your belief, this this decision that you make to follow after Christ and to model your life after Christ, and to and to and to, and to trust that the Spirit is is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ in all of His kindness and all of his humility and all of his sacrifice and all of his desire to bring healing and wholeness and his hospitality for the outsider, in all of that, you will be moving in that direction because you are believing, because you are putting everything you have into being like Christ. Because you're putting it on Christ. You're accepting that Christ is in you. The power of the Spirit is moving through you. And you are in the process of being saved. You know, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Romans 12, 2. Uh, it's one that I based my dissertation off of. I just absolutely love the verse. And, and the, the NLT, the New Living Translation, says this about verse 2 of, of Romans chapter 12. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Notice the behaviors and customs, not just the beliefs, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So, changing the way you think, as we learned last time, is that metanoia, that repent. That that word in the Hebrew, teshuva, means to go in a different direction. But in the Greek, metanoia means changing the way you think. Now, it's easy when we read that, that let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. To, to to understand it as, okay, I just have to acquire new knowledge. I have to get new knowledge. And that, that could be it. That could be what God is wanting you to do is to acquire new knowledge. But remember, we're not copying the behaviors and customs of this world. Now, the customs of this world could be the beliefs of this world, but we're also talking about the behaviors. And so there's something more happening here. And also, if we want to understand this verse a little bit more dynamically than just a knowledge acquisition or a changing of of our beliefs, um, our, our ways of understanding something. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that God has done for you. Let your bodies be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable because this is truly the way to worship God. And so there's this embodied idea that our whole being is to be put into uh, into sacrifice, to be lived as a holy sacrifice, to be set apart, so that we can honor God with what God has done, and we—that is our true act of worship—is to to live in this dynamic way that God has called us to. I also really love the J.B. Phillips. Um translation of the new testament j b Phillips has this great translation and and here's what j b. Phillips says about uh romans twelve two and I think this gets at the point I'm trying to make really beautiful j b Phillips writes this about verse two: don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remould and we get reminiscent of that returning to the good right that remold return to the good let god remold your minds from within and then here's the kicker so that you may prove in practice so that you may prove in practice that the plan of god for you is good meets all god's demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity so what does a mature faith look like it looks like one that is put into practice. It looks like one that is put into practice. This is why you'll hear me almost all of the time go to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, Paul writes that it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. The beauty of the fruit of the Spirit is that you don't get to accomplish the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get to put a checklist next to the fruit of the Spirit. You don't ever get to stop being patient. You don't ever finish being kind. You don't ever finish the idea of self-control. You don't ever finish the idea of being good or being faithful or... or. Um, you don't ever finish the idea of love. There's never a day when you're in relationship to someone and you're like, well, guess what? It's been, you know, 30 years of a best friendship. I guess I'm done loving you now, right? You just, you don't, you don't stop these relationships. Uh, you don't stop the, the way of being in these relationships. And so I think the idea of a mature faith, one that is seeing the transformation of the Holy Spirit lived out in, in a person's life, is that movement towards proving in practice that you are are meeting the goal of maturity. Why? Because you are proving in practice by the way in which you live. It's an active participation in what God is doing. See, here's the thing, knowledge can be used as an excuse not to change or grow or participate. Knowledge can be used as an excuse not to change or grow or participate. Why? Because we have all the answers. Because we've solved it all. We've done it all. We know it all. And if we have an answer to everything, then I don't need to do anything. That's one way of understanding how knowledge can play a role in our faith. Is If I feel like I know it all, if I've got the best doctrine, if I've got the best solutions to the problems, I've got the best answers to the test questions, then I don't need to actually do anything. I don't need to actually continue to grow or participate or change. However, that's only one way of understanding knowledge. Knowledge can also put you in a position for transformation. Knowledge can put you in a position for transformation. Why? Because now you have new information that rubs up against your old information and it makes you think critically, just like Romans 12.2 is calling us to let god transform you into a new person by changing the way you think how do you change the way you think you gain new knowledge you have more information you hear a different story you're open to a new idea you think critically about something that you've been handed all your life that is a healthy dynamic thing it doesn't mean that you reject everything you learned growing up no it means that you think about it you dwell on it you process it you put it through the test you you put it into practice and you prove if that thing is good, it will prove in practice that it's good. Why? Because it meets the goodness of God. It, 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 it actually, it embodies the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control. You know, here's the thing. If the faith that you have is lived out and it's not kind, then it's probably not being proven in practice to be something that stands the test of what God is up to. If, if the faith that you have causes you not to be a person of self-control, or if it causes you not to be faithful, or if it causes you not to be good, if it causes you not to be patient, if it causes you not to be loving, if the faith that you profess means that you are a less loving person in this world, then you are not proving in practice that That the faith has actually been remolded, that your mind has actually been transformed by the power of the Spirit, that the ways in which you are thinking, they actually have more transformation, they have more metanoia to do, they have more uh, teshuva to do, they have more maturity to go through. And so, knowledge can be used as an excuse to not change, grow, or participate, but it can also put us in a position for transformation. But it always requires our active participation, our transformation, our maturity, our growth, our ability to show up in this world and to look more and more like Christ, to actually be the body of Christ requires, it requires that we actively participate. And so when Jesus does a work in our life, when the Spirit does something in our life, is it good to keep acquiring knowledge? Of course it is. Of course it's good to acquire knowledge. But we always have to put it into practice to show that that knowledge that we now have is actually knowledge that is moving us towards God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven that looks like the fruit of the Spirit. And so my hope for us is that we continue to be people that want to grow and to learn. But that learning isn't just to get the right answers at the test at the end of our lives. That learning and that knowledge is so that we can actively participate in God's kingdom, bringing God's kingdom with all of the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. And the way in which we understand if we are living that out well is we prove in our practice, we prove in our practice that we are moving towards the maturity God has for us by being and living as Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is alive and active in our lives. Because we are all in the process of being saved. We're all moving towards Christ-likeness. And we want to stand on the foundations we've been given. We want to wrestle with those things so that we can solidify who we are but we have to participate, we have to act, we have to be people who aren't simply believers, but we are people who are true disciples, willing to model themselves after their rabbi, model themselves after Christ, so that we can show up in this world in a dynamic way that actually moves towards heaven on earth. Thanks for joining us again deconstructing the Bible.